Hey everyone, you're listening to The Vent Podcast, your source for market insights, wine industry news, and updates on our current collections. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, Brady and Billy here, back for another episode of The Vent Podcast. How are you doing, Billy? I'm doing very well today. Excited to continue this new format we have going here. Yeah, I can see behind you, it's um, definitely not the same weather as we have here in Virginia. Uh, Billy and Billy and I are on opposite sides of the country. Billy's in LA, and I'm in Richmond, Virginia. So um, I definitely wish that was flipped. Sometimes. Yeah, that that said though, I was I was just complaining about um, the temperature here. It actually is getting down to the the 40s at nighttime. It feels almost like I guess the East Coast fall. Um, but looping that back to wine, um, it's actually been interesting because we had like 80s, almost 90s a couple weeks back, and some wine regions further north actually were getting premature bud break. Like the vines were actually waking up. Oh, it was wow. so warm. Yeah. And then now with this cold snap, everybody's worried that frost is going to, those little buds that did come out might be killed or everybody's kind of freaking out. So yeah, I think the every man's evidence of that is, uh, especially here on the East Coast, when the daffodils come up, um, because they always come up, it feels like super early. And then we always have, you know, some, a lot of times it snows, even after the daffodils have poked up, especially in, in my yard. It's like, wow, they're super resilient that they're able to uh, still poke through when it's cloudy and 25 degrees in February. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good analogy. Unfortunately for, for grapes, if those little little buds are killed and they don't really grow back until the next year. So it gets yep. a little dicey. Um, our Piemonte and our Rhone Valley collections are still available, Billy. And um, I was running the numbers and it looks like we have a mere 2% left of our Rhone Valley collection. Um, so if you're looking to get shares of that awesome collection, wines from the Northern and Southern Rhone, we only have 84 shares remaining, about 2%. And then our Piemonte collection, which we launched most recently, we have about 27% remaining of that collection. Uh, just 853 shares, so less than you know, less than a thousand shares of both of these collections on the platform. A lot of upcoming opportunities to get into other offerings, but these are two really great collections that don't want folks folks to miss out on. Yeah, no, for sure. So I think the collections are a great place to start. Um, I think moving forward for the rest of this episode, we'll give some updates on the NFT status, and then um, kind of move on to some other interesting facts or things that we've been reading or want to talk about um on that front there so the nft updates so the collections are going fast so are the nfts we had initially said that we were going to be opening them up for a week we have extended the auctions to an extent uh but that said there are two of the three nfts already accounted for at this point uh we are working through the third but if you are interested please reach out directly uh, or purchase directly through the Rarible uh, platform. Um, I will make some qualifying there. The prices listed in USDC, which is a, a stable coin that's pegged to the US dollar, um, but you would have to pay on Rarible with uh, wrapped Ethereum, which is a one-to-one equivalent of Ethereum, but it does require an extra conversion step. So if, if that is a little too complicated for you and you're interested in buying up this last NFT, just reach out directly and we can work a way to... Uh, have payments sent directly to us. Yeah, that's. Um, would you be able to give folks a um, just brief overview, overview again of the NFTs that are available and, and what they get, um, what they grant access to for the purchaser? Yeah, good point. Um, so the NFTs all consist of three bottles of wine. So we have 
three bottles of signed wine by the winemakers, and they're all from three different vineyards. So one is from the famous Beckstoffer Tokalon Vineyard. The next is from the famous Beckstoffer George's Third Vineyard. And when I say famous, it basically means that these were heritage vineyards, which were planted originally in the 1800s that the Beckstoffer family has meticulously farmed for now 20, 30 plus years um, and are producing some of the best fruit in Napa Valley. And then the third vineyard, um, as, as Palmer, the winemaker and owner or co-winemaker and owner uh, mentioned on our webinar this week, uh, is from the Ellis Alden Vineyard, which is in Sonoma County um, in Alexander Valley, I believe. And it is a really cool vineyard that's above the fog line. So for some people who don't know, every uh, evening fog rolls into Sonoma and burns off in the mornings. And this this vineyard is high enough on a mountain that's in perpetual sunshine. So those are the three wines. Um, each NFT comes with three bottles of wine signed by Palmer. Uh, the next set of items that come with it are experiences. So there's a virtual tasting, an in-person tasting at the winery, and a winemaker dinner, um, which basically means you'll just be sitting down with Palmer and Michael, his partner, and having a great meal with a local chef that they know, um, either at the winery or nearby. I mean, in that, you know, that experience alone, a, a private dinner with the winemaker, you know, whether it's at the at the vineyard or at the winemaker's house, whatever the setting, I mean, those are coveted experiences that, you know, very few uh, winery members ever get to take a take part in. Um, so, I, you know, for me, at least the wines are amazing, but the experience alone is is uh, kind of worth the price of admission for those NFTs right now. Yeah. Now, if you look at it either way, like the wines, they're not available even to mm -hmm. uh, club members. And then second, so basically the, the NFT cover essentially just the cost of the wines alone. I don't, there's not really much right. of a markup there. So all the other stuff is kind of just gravy on top. And to your point, really exclusive access. So it's, it's a really unique opportunity. Yeah. Those are all some experiences, Billy. Um, you know, really, I, I would purchase them all myself and go out there, but you know, it's exciting to be able to, um, to offer these to our users, um, you know, really unique experiences that like we were saying, you just really can't get anywhere else. So excited to offer those NFTs and, and looking forward to chatting with the folks that end up, um, you know, getting those experiences. Um, we do want to start a little, uh, kind of a new segment that we want to do every so often and just kind of discussing what we're reading, what we're listening to, whether it's in the wine world, um, we're in the investing world. Um, so wanted to kick it off with you, Billy, and just share um, listening, reading, anything uh, kind of cool these days, whether they're books or podcasts. Yes, I'm happy you asked. Um, my side will, it will almost always be more on the uh, wine, wine reading and listening. But I'm, as, as you know, one of my passions is really just reading and learning as much as I can about every type of wine and regions throughout the world uh, to a point where my significant other has to... Um, limit the number of wine books we're allowed to have in the house. I basically am at the point where one in one out, um, if I ever have to get any new books. Um, but yeah, so I have a few really interesting things that I've been listening to as well as reading. Uh, the first um, I'm going to touch on is actually Berghound. Um, I don't know if anybody has heard of Berghound, but he's basically one of the top critics for Burgundy in the world. Um, he basically gives, he has a website that it looks a little old school, but he gives really thorough reviews of as many of the wines of Burgundy as he can taste each year. And he's one of the most respected critics in the area. Um, so as, as part of, you know, use, utilizing their platform for Vint and helping us do research on upcoming collections, 
he also had an audio series available. Now, basically, he walks you through kind of the history of Burgundy, the varietals, and then each uh, different AOC and commune. And it was it's really interesting. I'm I'm almost done. We've gotten through the Cote de Nuit and the Cote de Bone, and it, it's fascinating all the little nuances that each little subregion in Burgundy. You know, it's so small, but at the same time, it's chopped up into so many different unique pieces of terroir and vineyards. Um, so that's been that's been really fascinating. I I recommend it. It's a little pricey in terms of an audiobook. It's like an $80 book, but uh I highly recommend it for anybody who really wants to deep dive deep into Burgundy. It's 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 been a fascinating listen. And I, you know, just growing my wine knowledge over the last couple of years, you always realize once you think once you think you know something about a region, then you can always go a level deeper. You can always go you know, down to producers and then you can go to vineyards and then you can go to uh, blocks within the vineyards. Um, you can zoom out and look at vintages overall in a region. Uh, there are just so many different levels that you can look at, especially in a region like Burgundy, um, where there's so much diversity and complexity and kind of um, um, uh, little variances that make each of those producers different and the wines from them different. Um, those, those books can get dense quick. A hundred percent. Yeah. I'd say there's nothing more humbling than reading about Burgundy. Um, that's for sure. Yeah. In, in preparation for, uh, my trip next week to France, um, I've been reading Rajat Parr's, uh, Sommelier's Atlas of Taste and, uh, we'll be in Champagne, be in Alsace and we'll be in Burgundy. Um, and so that's kind of been, um, you know, I've been spending a lot of time looking at the Burgundy section as well there. And, you know, we were talking the other day about how, you know, Raj is able to distill so much content and recommendations down, um, into these kind of little blurbs throughout his book, but he'd, he does maybe one of the best jobs of anyone out there at giving really broad overviews of the world of wine, especially France. Um, not just producers to have uh, your eye on, but also restaurants and other activities to do. So that's what I've been pouring over um, since nice. I was gifted it recently. I haven't been to Burgundy yet. Um, it's on high on my list, but Burgundy is in East. Most, most of the wines are grown on this East facing slope, uh, the Cote d'Or. Some people say door stands for, the gold slope um because cote means slope but most people just it, it's originally short for cote de orient which means the the east facing slope um so they're basically the slope that's coming down from this higher middle area um, of mountains in like a plateau called the massif central that's kind of in the center of france and what i didn't really know as much about until i read rajat parr's book and then now they bring it up again in this berghound um, audio series is these these combs are basically like picture uh, little inserts or cuts in this this larger mountain or plateau that kind of flow down and they allow rain and water um, as well as wind to kind of be funneled down into these little like valleys um, or veils, if you will, in, in the slopes. And that's apparently where a bunch of the best uh, vineyards or certain communes are around these areas because like nutrients and different minerals would have flown down over the years. So uh I'm really interested for you to go kind of look at those and see if you can actually see them. I know some are really broad, some are narrow, but uh, it's, I didn't know those impacted the the terroir and the development of, of wines in Burgundy so much. Yeah. I, I think in terms of thinking about differences in like vineyard sites and regions, one of the things that has just always continually blown my mind is just the vast difference that something like, uh, you know, lower hanging fog in a Valley or changes in temperatures in elevation um, or just changes in uh, like moisture levels. You know, I, I grew up in a, a part of Maryland that is incredibly hilly and I grew up on a farm there and the temperature change from the top of the hill to the like bottom of a hill on our farm could be 
five to 10 to 12 degrees, depending there would be frost at the bottom, you know, and it would be sunny and warm up top, um, you know, only 200 meters away. So that's something, you know, what you're talking about is something that's always interested me about a five acre vineyard, but there could be so many different uh, little blocks where the climate, the way the area warms and cools during the day, uh, the sun exposure can all be totally different in various parts of the vineyard, which I think is just fascinating in the way that it, it changes, uh, you know, the finished product of the wine. Yeah, for sure. And that's why you'll see if you ever go to certain parts of wine country, regardless of the region, um, those fans at the bottom of yeah. bottom of hills to help mix the air so that the cold air doesn't settle down there. Um, and is yeah. this more, is that more, because, you know, we saw them recently uh, here in Virginia at Barbersville Vineyard. Um, is it more common uh, in regions where, you know, you get more vast fluctuations in temperature? So like Virginia, where we have all four seasons um, and especially during summer um, and spring, the temperature can, can change fairly rapidly. Um, is that something that you see more in regions like that? Or do you see them just as much in California, maybe where it's more consistent? Yeah, you um you see them in both. You see them in one in regions with uh, solid or high diurnal shifts, so difference in daytime, nighttime temperatures. That's why you'll see it more in more in California, because um, be- between the beginning and the end of growing season, um, it does get pretty cold. But mm. yeah, you'll you'll see them throughout out the world, um, but, but especially in areas that are prone to early early season frost, um, as well as potentially late season. But you'll so somewhere like burgundy for example where you know it may you may get a cold snap in may or april um you know right as the, the buds have kind of come out and that's kind of what we were talking about in northern california mm. recently is like, like right now like if since these buds came out so early they're in this potential phosphorus i bet some people are rolling out the fans if they don't have permanent ones already um so it, it really has to do more with where it can be cooler in the beginning and end of the growing seasons um okay. so not as much necessarily what the temperature is like year round. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, um, I've even seen, I'm not sure how many of our listeners have seen this, but the fires um, that they light in the vineyards, um, uh, you know, in Burgundy, I've, I've seen it. I'm not sure the uh, technical name for the, um, the little fires that they light between the rows. I've heard the term smudge pot. Um, there, I've, okay. I've heard, I know there's a French term as well, but uh, I think that's the British term, smudge pot. But are they uh, like little torches or lanterns, or are they kind of mini campfires? Do you know? They're they're more. I think they're burning like oil. Um, okay, sorts, that makes sense. So, that, so they can keep going longer, um, and that's that's part of why people are trying to look at fans or some other things because they're not. It's not necessarily environmentally friendly um, to have these like little little torches just going on. Um, so yeah, I, I think a lot of them are oil powered. Yeah. I mean, not, not to belabor the frost point, but it, there's so many options these days, like mm. in some of the most expensive vineyards where frost isn't always that common and they don't have permanent fans already built in. I've heard of, uh, in, especially if the vineyard's small, like something like a Petrus size, they'll get like helicopters and just fly them oh, low wow. over. Um, and obviously that's very expensive, but, uh, just to mix the air. Yeah. Just to mix the air to wow. put some of the, the hot air down from above. Cause sometimes the cold air just settles and there's a layer of warmer air just above um, where the vines are. So they literally just kind of do it to push it down, move out the cold air and keep everything rolling. Huh, that's um, really interesting. Yeah. People frost is a dangerous thing. People will do crazy things to avoid it. So now how does, you know, when we think about, uh, again, not to belabor frost, but this is, you know, I think really crucial for our investors in thinking about vintage to vintage 
and harvest to harvest potentially like uh how do these changes like especially drastic changes in temperature or um late frost in the spring how can that affect a vintage and um have we seen uh late frost affect vintages recently so um when a, when a vine is stressed from frost a few things can develop one thing is called calor which in the u.s is also known as shatter um this basically means that when the bunches form you have some that are look healthy they're they're regular size but then it'll be mixed in with a bunch of green little berries that don't quite form well so basically this ends up with less usable fruit um and just makes kind of the bunches if you do press those green grapes actually come off kind of astringent um and not as high quality so it takes a lot of a lot more picking and um sorting when you get to the winery on those those years at harvest and then um melandrage is basically this condition where basically there's a lot of seedless grapes so the the grapes that do form from the stressed vine are not necessarily uh, as as healthy as they would be otherwise. They'll still ripen normally, but they're a little smaller overall, um, and it produces you know less quality, less fruit in or less wine in general, and less quality overall. Yeah, I mean, you know, we and I, I assume you and the wine advisory team take all of those kinds of things into consideration when we look at collections. And when we survey vintages, past vintages, um, when we're looking to put a collection together, um, I think climate climate information is is a really important consideration. Yeah, for sure. And then that's something we're going to look to kind of try to give more insight to and do our theses as well um, to give our, our investors a little bit more insight on what what went on in the vintage um, and how, how weather impacted, why it's well rated or why the wines are great from that year or not. Yeah, and we touched a little bit on uh, my travels next week to France, um, but you just went uh, somewhere and wanted to hear about uh, your tasting in Mexico. Yeah, yeah. So we went down to one of my my favorite uh, wine little getaways here from Los Angeles, uh, down to the Valle de Guadalupe in northern Mexico. Um, it's in Baja, California, uh, kind of just like an hour and a half southeast of San Diego. Uh, it's a really cool valley. It kind of reminds me of pictures I've seen of what Los Angeles used to look like like 120 years ago. Just kind of dirt roads for the most part um, and, and really cool just vines everywhere. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I don't think a lot of people associate uh, Mexico with wine, but it's kind of an emerging, I think, coming on a lot of people's radars now. Yeah. And then what I find and I really like about it is that like wine on the North American continent really started in Mexico when the Spanish brought over vines and they started making it for religious purposes. Um, and it really caught on. It actually got so popular to the point where the King of Spain had to forbid uh, new grape growing in Mexico because they were actually exporting wine from Mexico back to Spain. And it was actually hurting the Spanish wine market. Um, so it, it's kind of cool. It's like you're going back in history. So it's at the same time old, but also emerging because over the years, you know, they had been producing wine, but it hadn't been kind of the the most high quality. It's more for local consumption. And then over the past, you know, few decades, they've been put a new focus on using unique varietals. Um, they have, there's a lot of random blends. They'll pull some everything from Cabernet Sauvignon to Sangiovese to Chardonnay to Sauvignon Blanc. Um, and then they're they're kind of well known or becoming well known for this thing they call Mexican Nebbiolo. Uh, which is an interesting story of itself because it's not Nebbiolo. Um, there is some actual Nebbiolo grown there, 
Um, it's actually a grape called uh, Alex, Alexander Labrusca, um, Labrusca Alexandra. I, I always get them mixed up back and forth, but it, it's kind of this higher producing, deep, dark uh, wine that produces really a fruit forward wine that's, you know, maybe medium acid as opposed to Nebbiolo, which we've talked about previously. And it's, you know, the primary grape in our Piemonte wines is um, lighter in color, highly tannic, high acid. Um, and is a really dynamic wine. So it, it's kind of funny that, you know, they're calling it Nebbiolo when it's really not, but this all stemmed back from when they originally brought the grapes to Mexico. Everything was kind of in these boxes. Uh, the old lore has it that they were cardboard boxes that fell apart. Whatever happened is all the grape varietals kind of got mixed up and they were all planted um, and called one thing. And then after genetic studies kind of went through, they found that they weren't um, what they claimed to be. But uh, the farmers there are really, really into the varietal and they're happy to kind of have a variety that's kind of their own, kind of like Chile kind of owns Carmenere. Mexico is trying to own this Mexican Nebbiolo in the Valle de Guadalupe. So something interesting to look out for if you ever go or come across one and try to see if you can identify, is it genetically true Nebbiolo or is it what they're just calling Nebbiolo? Are there any cult producers? They're still in the younger stage. Um, in, In terms of making them more like as the French would call it, Van de Garde or wines that are meant to age. It's only been, you know, 20, 25 years of, of really doing that and bringing in some winemaking experience from the United States and Europe. So the wines, there are some wines that have been aged, but they're just kind of coming around now. So there, there's there's a lot of longstanding producers, but nobody who would necessarily kind of fit that cult mantra or who's demanding that much money for, um, sure. for bottles. Something... So so, uh, two things that I did find interesting down there. One is speaking of more money for things is natural wine um, is becoming very popular in terms of a drinkable Mm -hmm. style down here in the South of uh, California. And I I was at multiple places where they had their, their quote unquote high end reds, you know, red wines spent multiple years in Oak, um, maybe five years old that were less than they were charging for these natural wines that they had just made. uh, Oh, wow. Yeah. This year. So, I mean, there, there was like $70 pet nets on menus next to red wines that were less than that. Um, yeah. And that had spent much more time being, you know, made. <laughs> is is uh, that mainly just a function of demand in that area or? It really speaks a lot to, you know, know your market. So a lot of people coming down to the Valle right now are just from uh, San Diego, LA. They're kind of going for more of this like wine adventure and trying to do something interesting. So they're, they're not necessarily people who want a bit on a big red wine. You might have, you know, a, a bachelorette party and they're just kind of going for have some like want something light and kind of bubbly um, or something that, you know, is, is hip in the area. So it is interesting. They're definitely tailoring to a lot of the people who come down there and knowing that their audience likes natural wines. So they're able to charge this much for them because there's so few of them actually made down there right now. And I talked with someone recently who is a collector and he's not interested at all in kind of, you know, um, what we think of when we think about like collectible, there's, there's big California reds. Uh, his cellar is basically all um, natural wines. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I think that it's really interesting to think about what, how does the collector landscape change over the next 10, 15, 20 years? Um, you know, I'm not sure if, you know, there how many opportunities there are for natural wines to break into the uh the collector market in a substantial way but you know you have to imagine that if they're commanding prices for consumers that there might become some you know even value collectors 
might be thinking about uh, some of these uh, these producers and you know how they might be able to extract some monetary value. Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to have to have a whole podcast where we just kind of dive into this a little more because it depends on how you define natural, you know? Mm -hmm. um, what I'm kind of thinking of as natural are these... Uh, low alcohol, funky... Yeah, kind of low intervention, low alcohol, exactly. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, if you think about a wine that's... If you define natural as biodynamically farmed, right. unfined, and unfiltered, I mean, you're basically talking all... about D DRC at that point. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So and I think a lot of people don't realize that, that this isn't a new thing. Uh, there are farmers, producers who have been paying attention <laughs> to the use of, you know, chemicals and, and other additives and, and that, you know, they've been paying attention to this for a long time. And people have been far farming biodynamically for decades, sometimes out of just necessity that they have to, you know, to preserve XYZ resources. Um, so we've kind of stuck a label on it there recently, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think when I'm talking about kind of the low intervention, these natty wines, a lot of them are bottled young. Um, some of them are in, in clear bottles, for example, too, which, you know, doesn't keep the light out. So they're really not meant to age. So they, there's definitely right. going to be a, there's a fine line in the same between wines that are low intervention and meant to age and ones that aren't. Um, I personally drink the natural wines more often than I drink, you know, high end ageable wines, just because I, I like, you know, how easy they are to drink. They're low alcohol. You can you know, have one easily on a weekend afternoon. Um, so it, it's interesting. I think you're, to your point earlier, I think you're going to find a lot of collectors, maybe people drinking more of one thing, but collecting and really mm -hmm. kind of showing off or, you know, sharing other bottles in certain other occasions. Maybe one's more of like a dinner friends over wine, whereas one is just like a Friday after work. Let's pop something. Right. Yeah. Cause you know, how, how well are those natural wines doing with your like T-bone steak? Yeah. Like they're they're a, probably heavy, not. Heavy meal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. if, if they're light and you know, they haven't spent much time vinifying, they're not going to spend a lot of, you know, they're not going to, they're typically low in tannin. Sure. Um, so it's, it's like a lot of those, that complexity is not there, but that's why you yeah. drink it. It's not well, yeah, complex. I'd, and I'd love to, you know, I've been, uh, we've had people over, I've been serving a lot of sparkling wine, like before we eat. Um, and would love to start serving more of the wines that we're discussing here. Um, some of those low intervention, maybe like uh, lower alcohol, a little bit more interesting, funky kind of um, wines would be cool um, as an aperitif. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's where pet nuts come in nice and handy. Mm -hmm. I, I will say like most most weekends, my uh, significant other night kick off with either a sparkling or like a pet nut, just something with a little bit of that effervescence to, um, and, and pet nut, for those who don't know, stands for petulant natural. It's basically... Uh, a wine that's kind of bottled while it's still fermenting. So it, it creates a little bit of effervescence in the bottle. Um, but yeah, no, I, I highly recommend them. I mean, again, some, some of these natural wines, depending on their, their flavor profile can be like hit or miss. Some can be a little more um, funkiness in terms of like, really, it could be green. Sometimes it could be really tropical fruits. Um, there are definitely flavors that most people don't expect in a wine. So make sure your guests um, are ready. Um, we've had a few people where we share wines that we really like, and they're like, what, what is this? I thought this was a white wine. Yeah. They're, they're <laughs> the, uh, they're the sours. Like if you, of the wine world, if you compare it to beer um, 100%. and it, you know, you either love it or you hate it or you have it and then are willing to give it another shot and you love it. <laughs> yeah. I would say that's a great parallel. I mean, there's some that are a little lighter than normal or others. Like there's some like gateway, I guess you would say mm -hmm. some, some of these heavily skin contact or funky whites. Um, 
that we've learned to share with others. But yeah, you don't ever just drop somebody right in like a, I'd say like a Georgian amber wine. You wouldn't just drop someone off the boat into that. Um, that would be a little. Well, now little I've heard, I've heard a, um, I've heard criticism of this movement uh, recently where uh, producers in regions of the country where maybe it's just like pretty hard to grow consistently um, uh, good grapes have been kind of taking part in this um, quote unquote natural wine movement, but really, and the critics have said, well, it's not natural wine per se, the way that you're talking about the kinds of wines you like, it's really just winemaking that didn't work out. <laughs> They're just bad wines. They're not like funky or sour in a good way. They're just bad wines, um, which I thought was kind of an interesting conversation where, you know, how, how does the typical consumer know what to look for when thinking about, oh, did they just like kind of mess this up? Or is this a interesting flavor that they just uncovered and were able to impart? Well, that's, and that's where I, I used to, I've worked at multiple producers and that's where I would always get in discussion with winemakers. Cause they'd be like, no, this is just like bad wine. It's like, but it, it's all about your end goal. So sure. Maybe that one could have been the result of something that was an accident, but so was like white Zinfandel. Like white Zinfandel is basically a stuck fermentation of Zinfandel. Um, and what stuck fermentation means is like a, a, a wine's fermenting and then all the, the yeast basically stop working before all the sugar is fermented out. So they ended up with this like pink sweet juice. Didn't know what to do with it. They bottled it and people loved it. So, so it all really depends on what you're what you're looking for. Maybe somebody did pick, you know, their, their grapes didn't ripen at all. And they had this like 9% alcohol that's like, you know, almost seems thin and acidic. But, you know, if you're looking for that, you add a little bit of, you know, bottle it a little early, have some bubbles. And that sounds, you know, kind of like an interesting beer almost. So you just got to change your frame of reference into what you're expecting and then it can work. Um, that's kind of how I perceive it. Yeah, that, that's really interesting because, you know, where I'm I'm from in central, north central Maryland, um, there's one kind of more notable uh, producer that makes the style of wine that we're talking about. And really the rest of the, the wineries in the region, you know, they're either making like fruit wines and sweeter wines with a lot of residual sugar, um, you know, because they're they're not able to they're not able to plop down several acres of Cabernet Sauvignon and and, and compete with really any wines uh, west of the Mississippi. Right. Um, it's just like not the climate for it. And so these producers have been kind of popping up and it's interesting the experience that you have at these wineries versus you know, maybe a place that's making higher end ageable reds. Um, whereas like the experience is focused uh, totally around the wines and the complexity of the wines and like the experience of the, the wines themselves. Um, you know, if you think about California, but then in some of these regions where maybe they're doing something a little bit, a little bit off the beaten path, they're experimenting a lot. They're, you know, they kind of fit into that sour or IPA category. Um, for wine there, you know, the experience of the wineries can sometimes be like totally different because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's less about, oh, the finesse, um, of, of the wines. And it's more about like, oh, like, can we create a unique experience? Can we give you something that you've never had before? Like, can we make a day of it? Um, it's hard Are to you talking about old Westminster by chance. <laughs> yeah. Old Westminster. That's where I grew up. That's right. Really? Um, yeah, I grew up in uh, Westminster, Maryland, actually Union Bridge, Maryland. Um, and Old Westminster is, you know, if you I've seen it in Whole Foods before, uh, so they must be doing something right to, no, <laughs> to show up I, Whole Foods, I, I, but I would say, no, me and I drink a decent amount of Old Westminster. Actually, wow. yeah. uh, you, you'd be surprised. Yeah, they, they um, there's a bunch of uh, 
natural wine shops here in Silver Lake that actually have Old Westminster and they're, wow. they're at wine bars. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, we, we've had their, their piquettes, their pet nats, and also they have this one called Just Peachy, which um, has actual peaches in it, I believe, yeah. like actual peach juice and some cider. We've been looking at a lot of these co-ferments. So, well, I would say I love those. And we, we get them in cans as well as bottles out here. Nice. So uh, I think they're, they're, I like their originality and they're not trying to be anything else like to your point they're not trying to be fancy or yeah trying yeah. to be they're, they're just kind of they kind of own what they are and yeah their stuff is so refreshing so. it's a beautiful property it's a ton of fun together they usually have like live music and stuff but i i just like can't help but juxtapose that with kind of the buttoned up napa experience that you get at the wineries um it's almost like they're selling a totally different experience and product which they are but um yeah it's just, it just shows the um you know the the variance in the wine world um yeah when you we'll definitely we'll go over there together we'll visit in person um when uh when you come this way because uh, i'll be up there um starting in june so yeah that'll be awesome i'm actually looking forward to that cool well uh we've probably bored people enough here with our our natty wine speak i, I think we should actually have a, an actual podcast where we dive kind of into the what we mean by low intervention and and uh what that means in farming as well as the winery i think that could be kind of fun to dive into yeah, listeners, uh, drop, drop us a note. Let us know if you're interested in, in hearing more about that. We, you know, we have a kind of a slate of interviews and guests coming on the podcast in the coming weeks. Um, some really exciting things, but uh, we're definitely looking to produce content that um, is interesting to all of our users, especially to our to our Vint investors. Um, so, yeah, sounds good. Well, have a good uh, rest of your afternoon, everybody. I think we're going to sign off now. Yep, sounds good. Thanks, guys. Cheers. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vent podcast, please email us at support at vent.co. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vent platform, find us at www.vent.co. That's www.vint.co. Vent and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vent platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.